0: Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you all this morning on a middle of the summer uh, Sunday. It's always good to see some folks come out. I know we have a lot of folks away, but it's always encouraging to see some folks here on a Sunday morning. I appreciate it. Our scripture passage this morning is Psalm 37. We've been going through the Psalms this summer, and we're carrying on with that. This Sunday, we'll do Psalm 37. Next Sunday, we'll do Psalm 38 and so if you're flipping there and you come to this text, you'll see that we have a lot of verses to cover this morning. I think last week we we did three verses. We're gonna attempt 40 verses um, this Sunday. So we won't we won't get to every detail of this, this psalm. I'll tell you that up front, but we'll focus on the main things that God teaches us through this psalm, Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is a, is a wisdom psalm. Uh, as we read through this, you might think we're in a book like Proverbs, and you'd be right. It it's, reminds us of some of the language that we have in Proverbs. And a wisdom psalm is to instruct us in, in how to live in a world that is fallen, in a world that is sinful, a world that is crazy, a world that is still God's beautiful creation. How do we live faithfully in that kind of context? That's what this psalm has for us. This morning, You'll note as we read this psalm that a lot of psalms are directed upward, sort of the praise psalms, Thanksgiving psalms. This psalm is directed inward. It's directed to our, our souls, to our emotions, to our thoughts, to our attitudes. It, it penetrates to that, that level as we read through this psalm this morning, as it instructs us how we should live. So would you stand this morning for the reading of God's Word? Psalm 37, a psalm of David. "'Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourselves in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday.'" Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land. And delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the righteous or the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They're not put to shame in evil times. In days of famine, they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. But those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though we fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utter wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power, or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you. To inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passed away. And behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. Though salvation of the righteous is from the Lord, he is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, as we come to it, as we study it, would you impart its truth deep to our hearts? Lord, would we know more of the character of our Savior, more of the hope of the gospel, more of the wonder of your salvation, even as we study and learn this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. This psalm talks about desires. What do you desire? One of my favorite miracles that Jesus does comes in the gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 10, and it's the healing of blind Bartimaeus. Maybe you know this story. There's Bartimaeus, he's sitting beside the road, and crowds are going out, and Bartimaeus knows that Jesus is among them, and he cries out, and he says, Jesus, son of David, have have mercy on me. And those going with Jesus sort of dismiss Bartimaeus and say, just, you know, be be quiet. Don't don't disturb Jesus. And Bartimaeus calls out again, have mercy on me. And then Jesus stops, hears Bartimaeus, and, and calls Bartimaeus towards him. And Bartimaeus rejoices. He throws off his coat, and he's helped towards Jesus. And then there's this moment where Jesus asks this question. And he says to this blind man who's in front of him, what would you have me do for you? What, what do you want from me is basically the question that Jesus asks him. I want us to think for a moment this morning, if, if Jesus asks us that question, how do you respond? What do you want from, from Jesus? What this psalm does is it brings us to our desires for things. Verse 1 talks about fretting ourselves because of evildoers and envious of wrongdoers takes us to a point where we, we see a lot of things and we say, I, I want that, I desire that. But are those the right desires for us? And, and, and to make matters worse as we get into this psalm, what we see is, is the people that have the things that we desire are actually evildoers, are actually people who aren't following God's way, aren't following the wisdom that is lined out for us in this psalm. And it causes us maybe some, some confusion, some consternation. This word fret has a sense of, of almost anger, of frustration, of, of disillusionment. Why is it not working? I desire these things, and, and I'm, I'm following what God is, is asking me to do, and, and things don't seem to be coming together. We're maybe frustrated. Maybe we, we look and we see another sort of person living what seems to be a perfect life. They've got a good job, a good family, a good house, a good vacation, and they just seem to move from success to success, and yet you know that they they don't have any real belief in Jesus, any hope in the gospel, any commitment to following God's truth. And and maybe you you begin to wonder. Maybe you become, like this psalm says, envious, And, and your desires are out of order. Your desires are out of order. You begin to desire all the things that these evildoers seem to have instead of what this psalm asks us to do. Very simply, this psalm asks us to reorder our desires by delighting in God. To reorder our desires by delighting in God. There's a lot in this psalm, and as we sort of untangle it all, we see early in the psalm sort of the the bottom layer of this is there's an issue of what do we actually desire. Do we desire the things of God, or do we desire any other number of things that present themselves as good? So, So how do we begin to change? How do we begin to reorder our desires and actually delight in God? Well, what this psalm does initially is it asks us to examine outcomes, to examine outcomes. It spends quite a lot of time dealing with sort of two alternatives. One is what happens to those who are, who are evildoers. What does that mean? It just means those who aren't pursuing the things of God, who aren't pursuing the truth of God's Word in their lives. And the other category is the, the blameless, not some perfect people, but people who are, who are following God, who are trusting in God for their salvation. Those are the two Two groups in this psalm, and so first let's look at those who are called wrongdoers or evildoers. We're called not to fret about them in verse 1. Why not? Verse 2 gives us this answer, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. We've experienced this, haven't we? I was out of town for a week, and I came back, and my front lawn was just dead. Not, not entirely. There's still a little bit of hope, but it's, it, it quickly withered. It quickly withered. It didn't have sort of the... These people don't have sort of the, the right, the true, the good, the beautiful that is supporting how they live, and quickly they fade like grass. It might seem good, but there's nothing of substance there. There's nothing that, that really lasts. And so we see this a couple points in the psalm and 2, and then later, our verse 2, and later on in verse 35, this picture of something that is, is green, is lush, and then quickly dies. That's the the picture of the evildoers, those who seem to be doing very well. We see a turn in verse 12 and 13. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. And then what happens? Verse 13. But the Lord laughs. This is similar to what we see in Psalm 2 where where God is pictured as one who who laughs at the plans of those who plot against him. God knows what's going to happen. God's in control. God is not disturbed by things that seem to be outside of what we think should happen. God is in control. This laughter is not of of sort of shameful laughter, but of, of sort of just his knowledge of what is to come, for he sees his day coming, the day where there will be consequences. Verse 20 gives us a better picture of this. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. So for us this morning, as we think about what we should delight in, where we should put our our ambition, our, our energy, all of those things, it reminds us right here at the beginning of this psalm that those things that people run after, that seem to have so much lasting power and so much joy that they offer, don't ultimately satisfy they don't ultimately provide what they say they will provide. In fact, when we live a life apart from God, apart from following Him, it leads to this perishing, to this end, to this punishment. That is something we we, we may know, but we need it again and again sort of brought to mind, reminded of that truth. What's the alternative? If the wicked perish, what happens to these who are blameless, who who aren't perfect, but who put their trust and hope in God for salvation, what happens to them? Well, verse 8 reminds us to refrain from anger, not to become angry when other people seem to have what is good. But in fact, verse 9 tells us, "...for the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land." Now, if you, if you heard that phrase throughout the psalm this morning, you heard it five or six times, this sort of refrain of, of inheriting the land, of inheriting the land. This is what the faithful, those who follow God, are, are offered. Now, in this context, it's talking about the promised land. God's people have come into the land, and they're there, they've, they've received this place that they're called to live, and as they are there, there are other people who are encroaching on that space. God is saying, as you wait for me... This land will be yours. You will inherit the land. You will get this place of of blessing. Trust me. Wait for me. There there is an inheritance coming for me. You will get this this land. Verse 11 makes this even more clear. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now, what does it mean to be meek? talk about that more later as we get into some other aspects of this this passage. But it's not talking about someone who is simply sort of a a pushover. Um, We read the Beatitudes this morning, and we know that meekness is is right there. And there, the meek don't just inherit the land. What do they inherit? The earth. As Jesus comes in, he expands this this promise. As he comes in, he points to the new heavens and the new earth, and the reality that those who are meek will receive not just the land here, but the, the new heavens and the new earth. They get everything. These meek people here are, are those who are patient and trust in faith. They're not taking, they're not demanding, they're not positioning themselves for conquest or grandeur, but they're trusting in a sovereign God, patiently waiting. And as they do that, they receive a blessing that is, is so much better than the short blessing of the wicked. And that's, that's something so foundational as we read through the Psalms. We're going to see that again and again. We've seen that already this, this summer. But we need to understand this deeply and profoundly, that this is how the gospel works. This is how God's plan of salvation works, that, that in the momentary time, it might look like evil is winning. But God reminds us again and again of this, this final hope, where, where here it's inheriting the land. In the New Testament, it's the new heavens and the new earth. It's being in God's presence himself. That's what we are waiting for, that's what we get to receive. And in the interim, God knows us. Look at verse 18. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They're not put to shame in evil times. That means now God knows us. God knows us. Whatever you're experiencing, wherever your desires may be, God, God knows you. He knows your days. And we can take comfort in that, that God is not sort of just sort of waiting for some final wonderful thing and just sort of leaving us for now. But even now, He knows us. He knows us, and He calls us to delight in His way. And then in these next verses, we don't have time to, to dive into every detail of them, but it, it charts a course for us of following the steps of the Lord. Verse 23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when He delights in His way as we wait for that great inheritance. As we wait for that giving of the new heavens and the new earth, following God's way is what is good for us. It's what is best for us. It reminds us of that. Maybe some of you are, we're used to maybe thinking in long term ways when we come to financial investments. Now, what I'm going to say here is not financial investment advice in any way, shape, or form, but maybe some of you are familiar with uh, Vanguard Investments. Now, an interesting story about that sort of, it's an it's a indexed mutual fund. Uh, and you put your money there, and it's supposed to grow at 7% for the next X number of years. Uh, But the founder of that, in his book, uh, he wrote a sort of autobiography of his life, John Bogle, and the title of this book is is Staying the Course. And his philosophy, so to speak, in investing is one of just waiting, sort of playing the long game. And and maybe some of us are, are used to thinking that way in terms of our financial investments. We're used to waiting, we're used to being patient, but when we step outside of the financial world and into sort of the, the rest of our lives, we want things now. We want the, the guaranteed result. I did this thing. I followed this biblical principle. I should get X reward now. The psalm is reminding us that, that sometimes it's a long view. Sometimes we need to, like with this investment advice, take the long course. To think through the outcomes, not in the here and now, but in the, in the, long, in the long term. And so where where is that hard for you to do? Maybe it's with your relationships. Maybe it's with your interactions with family. Wherever it might be, sometimes we we do the things we know we should do, and it doesn't seem to work immediately. The psalm is reminding us that God works in in long-term ways, and we need to trust that and wait patiently in this, this posture of meekness, of trust in God's sovereignty. And as we do that, we are confident in His character and what He will give us in the end. the psalm is more for us than simply trusting in long-term results. It also brings us into this this really central idea of delight. What do we delight in? Verse 31 calls us to have his law, the law of God, on our hearts. How do do we begin to have hearts that are renewed? Verse 4 gives us some help. It says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, right here, this verse four is surrounded by a a constellation, if you will, of these things that we are to do. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. Befriend faithfulness. Verse five, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. All of this idea of trusting, depending on God, comes down to this idea of delighting yourself in the Lord and giving the desires of your heart. It's really at the center of of this psalm. What does it mean, though? Sometimes this is Maybe one of the more misused verses in Scripture, where we just sort of delight ourselves in the Lord, and then we get whatever we want, right? We, we know that that's not how this works, but what the psalm is, is reminding us is that as we see the truth of who God is, as we delight ourselves in who the Lord is, God reshapes our hearts. He reorders our desires so that we actually truly find what is right, good, beautiful, satisfying in our Savior, Jesus of you know this, but the ancient church uh, theologian St. Augustine, when he talked about sins, he talked about them as disordered desires. He said, The problem isn't primarily that we, we love the wrong things, but we love things in the wrong order. It's, it's good to have financial success, it's good to have things that are, are good in the here and now, but what this psalm reminds us is that at the top of the order, primary delight for us. Needs to be the Lord. It needs to be God. And when we reorder our desires, when, when God truly is the primary desire, then we, we do have the desires of our heart. Those desires will be reshaped and reformed. As we do that, then we can commit our way to the Lord. Then we can trust in Him. Then we know who this Savior is and we delight in Him and we renew our hope. In Him, And so, as verse 7 says, then we can truly wait patiently for him because we know who he is. We know the satisfaction that he, he brings. Maybe some of you have, have heard this before. You, you know that we're to delight in God, and, and you've become very familiar with the, the gospel. You're familiar with the wonderful truth of, of who Jesus is. Uh, my family and I were out of town last week for a family wedding in Pennsylvania, and we managed to sneak up to Niagara Falls for a day. We'd never been before, and we went on the, the boat ride, the Maid of the Mist, with our, our girls, and it was wonderful. We we're delighting in this beautiful waterfall. It's beautiful, we're having tons of fun. And, and as we were coming off the boat, we were one of the first runs of the day, what was really interesting was to watch all of the, the staff members, probably about a dozen staff members on this boat. And you couldn't tell who was a staff member and who was a tourist by the looks on their faces. These people who had done this trip hundreds of times were having the best time. They were excited. They were the driver of the boat. I, I looked back at him just as we were coming right up to the falls, and he's got this huge smile pastured on his face. He's delighting in this experience. He's delighting in, in what is true. And so, so for you and I, I think there's something that we can, we can learn there, that the, the gospel the Jesus, that our, our Lord and Savior, the very person of Jesus and, and God himself, never exhausts our delight. We can't sort of out-delight him. We can't become sort of, just sort of disinterested in him. As we turn to him and his character, as we, we seek to learn more of him, there, there's always more that gives us delight. There's always more that, that gives us something that, that will reorder our desires so that he is what is supremely good supremely right. Now, how do we do that? We don't simply just tell ourselves, you must delight more. We need some, some help in this. We, we aren't simply changed by rationally understanding arguments. We need something to, to change us. We need God's spirit to actually change what we delight in. Romans 5, verse 5 talks about this, how God's spirit is poured out into our hearts. And as the spirit is poured into our heart, that begins to change us. It begins to reshape what we actually value and delight in. So as we come to a psalm like this, we come and we, we ask that God would change us. We say, Lord, would you, by the power of your spirit, change me so that I delight in you? Not in all the other things that seem to be worthy of delight, but that I would delight in you. I'm going to read a quote from, from Augustine again. He was dealing with this same issue. And sometimes it's helpful to look back in church history and see that people haven't changed all that much. Sometimes it's discouraging, sometimes it's actually hopeful, that we're still struggling with the same things. How do we change? How do we actually delight more and more in God? This is what Augustine said. He said, "Christians receive the Holy Spirit so that there arises in their minds a delight in and a love and a love for the highest and immutable good that is God. Unless we find delight in it and love it, that is God, we do not act. We do not begin, do not live good lives, but so that we may love him. The love of God is poured out in our hearts, not by free choice, which comes from ourselves, but by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's what we need. We need the Holy Spirit to change us, initially in the moment of salvation and daily as we seek to delight more and more in our Savior. Our prayer this morning as we come to a psalm like this is say, Lord, would you make me more of this person who waits patiently, who waits meekly, who waits in confidence, who commits your, his way to the Lord. That, that idea of committing your way to the Lord is, is literally to roll your, your, yourself onto the Lord. Roll your problems, literally, on God. Trust in Him. Delight yourself in Him, and He will give you the desires of your heart. The last thing that we see in this psalm is as we put all of this together, we see that there is an inheritance that is gained. We mentioned that in the land. And there are two postures that are still given to us to follow. One is this idea of meekness. Now, nobody likes to be called meek, right? If you're, if you're called meek by somebody, you might bristle a little bit at that. We've come to equate meekness and, and weakness. Now, it kind of rhymes, and we see why, we, why we've done that. Now, we need to be careful in how we understand this this word. Verse 11 reminds us that the meek shall inherit the land. We we read the Beatitudes this morning. We see that Jesus also called us to this posture of of meekness. And and what does this mean? Well, as we wait, as we live out our days here in this crazy, fallen, beautiful world, we we wait in a posture of, of meekness. And... Again, this is not something that comes naturally to us. It is, it is counterintuitive. It's a posture sometimes called strength under control. It's not inherently that somebody is weak, but it's somebody who knows finally who is in charge. It's one who trusts in God's sovereignty. It's one who knows what will happen. And it's, it's radically counterintuitive to our day and age. Meekness is not a, a Western virtue. In fact, if you've, if you've read some philosophers, Nietzsche, he actually accuses people who think meekness is a virtue of just saying, well, you're weak. So, of course, you have to make your, your position of weakness a, a virtue. But biblically, meekness is a posture that trusts in God. It trusts, it's a sort of strength of character that trusts in God. As we wait, we know that God is the one who will, who will act. It's not a posture that says we're going to go and, and conquer and, and establish everything. It's, it's one of trusting that as we follow what God asks us to do, he will be faithful to us. J.C. Ryle, this is a, a dead theologian from the 1800s, said this, let us learn how entirely contrary are the principles of Christ from the principles of the world. He wrote that talking about Matthew 12 or Matthew 5 and this idea of meekness. How entirely contrary are the principles of the church from the principles of the world? And he wrote that in the 1800s. A time when people were the same. People were still trying to go and, and make their, their name. The largest company in the world at that time was the Dutch East Indies company. Maybe you've read about that company. Largest company ever to exist. Its market capital was $7.8 trillion. Bigger than Facebook, Google, and um, Facebook, Google and uh, Apple combined. All those companies, bigger than them. And it was a time when there were businesses like that who were, who were large, who were successful, And here there's this posture, and it's not to say that being successful in business is is wrong, it's not what it's saying, but there's a posture here about what truly delights us, what truly matters, what truly lasts. It's a posture of trust in God. Trusting that God is the one who is sovereignly going to accomplish what he has called us, or what he has said he will do, and called us to follow in that. And maybe some of us chafe a little bit at that, we push back about that, but this passage calls us to grow in meekness. How do we do that? Well, we, we turn to God's word and we see his truth. And again, we ask for His spirit to show us where we are, are prideful, where we are trusting in our own abilities and not in the sovereignty of God. Where are we trying to make a name for ourselves rather than glorify God's name? How does this all come together? Well, it comes together in verses 39 and 40, where we see a picture of salvation. Verse 39 says this, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord." The verses leading up to this 32 through 38 have sort of repeated a lot of this, waiting for God, that the wicked will will perish and the blameless will receive a future. But here there's this salvation that holds it together. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the try- time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them. If we can go back to that question we began with by Jesus, Jesus Bartimaeus, and he asks the question, what, what do you want me to do for you? If you know the story, you know that Bartimaeus asks, Lord, I, I want to see. I want to see. And, and what does Jesus do? He answers that desire, but he also gives him something more. He says, your sins are forgiven. This psalm, even as it ends, reminds us that that really is the desire of our hearts as we look at everything that's out there, everything that is offered to us And so often I think when we would be in that moment with Jesus and ask, what do you want, we'd have a list of things. I wish you'd change this. I wish you'd do that. I wish you'd give me this. But the the right posture, the posture that the psalmist ends with here is this. We need salvation. We need the gospel. We need our sins forgiven. We need to actually be included in this glorious inheritance. And unless God acts, we won't be. Unless God asks, our delights will not be in him, but in all manner of things. But here the psalm asks us again to to say with Bartimaeus, Lord, I want to see, not just physically, but but spiritually. I want the gift of salvation. I want to be renewed in that hope. And as I delight in you, would you give me the desires of my heart? And he will. He will give us the desires of our heart, he will give us his very self. Through the power of the Spirit in Jesus, he will give us himself, and we will be satisfied. When we see his face in the new heavens and the new earth, we will be joy-filled. We we taste that now. We will see it fully then. And so, as the psalm ends, we take refuge in him. Take refuge in him. Here and now, trusting in the day when our desires will be fully, perfectly in order in the new heavens and the new earth, when we will delight fully in the God who is there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, would you help us grow in a delight in in you? Lord, would you, by the power of your spirit, show us what is true? Lord, when we are tempted to become angry, to become envious of all the things that seem successful and good and right, would you remind us what is true, that you are a God who is sovereign, that we can commit our way to you, and as we delight in you, that you will give us the desires of our heart, reform desires, desires that are right and good, and reflect the truth of your word. Would you do that this week and the rest of our lives? We ask this in your name. Amen. Let's take a moment now.